Amen. Thank you, Brother Mickey. I'd invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word, and you can turn to two places. We will be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and our main verse will be Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. We'll begin at Galatians 4.4, then reference Luke 2, and then we will go back to Galatians. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, now, okay, Matt, I have looked, and there are no blanks to fill in in the bulletin. I'm real concerned. Um, Well, one of the reasons I give you blanks and give you the full outline each week is that when you're sitting there, and as the outline starts to fill in, You can have relief in your soul thinking, thank God he's only got one more point. (laughs) So this is is one of those mornings where you're not going to know. But I just want to talk to you this morning about the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas. There's a verse which is shared very frequently in Christmas cards this time of the year. And ironically, It's not found in the Gospels, it's found in Galatians, and it's Galatians 4.4. It will be on the screen if you'd like to follow along, or you can look in your copy of the Lord's Word. And it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. When we see this, there is a phrase that I want you to see. When the fullness of time had come. Biblical commentators tell us that what Paul is trying to capture here is that this was a moment that was not simply just the right time. But it was more than that. It was a culmination of history that all history was moving together, fixed on this one point in time. It was a moment in time, but it was full because God was doing something rather special. Well, what moment, what fullness of time is it referencing? Well, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read to you words that are very familiar to you. In fact, we've looked at them several times over the past few weeks. But I'm going to read to you these again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him 
in a manger because there was no place for them in the end, in the end. There is a particular page in the Bible, you're familiar with it, and it is just the page that looks like this right here. It is one page which separates the New Testament from the Old Testament. It just says, in my copy, the New Testament. And on that single page, approximately 400 years of human history took place. At the end of the Old Testament, concluding with the last of the minor prophets, Malachi, were left off with this sense that whatever it was that God is doing has not yet reached its full completion. That God has already fulfilled many of his promises in the Old Testament, but there still was an expectation that there was more to come. But if you're following the storyline of the Old Testament, it's important to note what it would have felt like if you were a first century Jewish believer in Yahweh, in God. Well, first of all, you would have believed that Abraham was seen as a new kind of Adam, that humanity had failed in the Garden of Eden, and that after humanity had failed in the Garden of Eden, they were ultimately, as they were spread out, disciplined and destroyed by a flood because of violence against each other. It grieved God's heart to do this according to the scripture. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 6. But then God started all over again. But then there's another story. There's the Tower of Babel where once again humanity disobeys. The world falls into disarray. And God decides to do something special with one man. And that man's name is Abraham. And Abraham is given a few promises. This one man and his family to follow him was chosen out of all the people of the world for God to do something very, very special. And God promises Abraham several things. First, he promises him a family. That he is going to make him into a nation. And a family and a nation requires children. And Abraham is an older man when he gets this promise, but he believes God. But not only does God promise Abraham a family, God promises Abraham also a land and a home. In fact, the opening lines that we find out about Abraham is God telling in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham to go to a land that he is going to be shown my Lord, and that God was going to give him this land. He was going to give him a family, and he was going to give him a land. But not only that, that God gave this family this land, but also gave this family a divine mission, a divine mission. You can read about it in Exodus 18. We won't take time to do that today, but you've heard me talk about it before that God was choosing this one family out of all the families of the world to be a kingdom of priests. Priests. 
Well, what is a priest? A priest is a go-between between you and God. A priest is someone who connects someone to God. And God saw fit that this family that possessed this land also was going to be a kingdom of priests so that the whole world would be able to come and know the God of Israel through this family that he had placed in this land. But not only that, he also gave them kings. In fact, their greatest king was a king by the name of David. My father is named after King David. Some of you are named David. But David is considered their greatest king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is given a promise that he will have a descendant of his sit on his throne forever. So that God through this, was not just promising a family and a nation, not just a land and a home, but a divine mission to be priests to the world. And then God also gave them a king so that there would be this king that would rule over this land and that this place was going to be this, to borrow the words of Jesus, this shining city on a hill that the whole world would know the God who loves them and be reconciled to God through this people that God had sent the world. But of course, you know the rest of the story. That's not exactly how it worked out, right? And in fact, if you were looking at it, you would have realized that the the family, really from the word go, had trouble sticking together. They had drama in their family, just like we have drama in ours. And then also this question of the land. It's arguable they never inherited the land that they actually were promised to its fullest extent. Not only that, there were constant civil wars and bickerings, and they went into exile and Really, when you get to the pages of the New Testament, the land as it was in the Old Testament is pretty much gone at this point. They are under occupation when Jesus is born. And, and then not only that, it gets even more complicated. They were to be a kingdom of priests. In fact, if you were to read Exodus, you find that there's this one particular family that's going to represent the high priest for the people. It came from a man by the name of Aaron. In fact, you recognize his blessing that I speak over you at the end of every service, the ironic blessing that the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. Aaron was to have a descendant to be the high priest of Israel, but that was no longer. The ironic high priest was gone. In fact, if you were to look in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 5, you will see that Aaron still had family in the priesthood, in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. But here's what we know. Aaron's family was no longer the high priests. Why? What had happened? Well, because Israel had gone into exile because of their disobedience to God, when they returned back to the land, you know the story. Ezra helped rebuild the temple. Nehemiah helped rebuild the walls. And then they were nestled safely in the land together forever at last. No, not at all. In fact, 
the story is good, but it's not really that good because not even all of the exiles come home. Only a small portion of the exiles ever return home. And then once they get home, they immediately fall into sin. It was sin of a different kind this time. It wasn't idolatry, but it was they immediately turn to their own efforts and then they are overrun this time by a conqueror named Alexander the Great. And then after being overrun by the Greeks, they are then overrun again and again. And then they fall into occupation. And interestingly enough, there's this one family. In fact, this is where we, the holiday Hanukkah, the reason it is celebrated is because of this one family, the Maccabees. They started the Hasmonean dynasty. This was a family that helped throw off political oppressors. And there was about a hundred year period before Jesus from about the year 167 to around the year 40 before Jesus came around that Jews had some moderate freedom. And it was at this time that the Hasmoneans set up a kingdom. And they had a king, kind of, but he wasn't of the line of David. And they had a priest, kind of, but the high priest was not of the line of Aaron. They were Hasmoneans. And the reason I say all this to say is when you get to Luke's opening verses, it is a reminder to first century Jewish people that all of their blessings had seemingly reached a dead end. Because when you open and look at the opening words, in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Who is that? The king of Israel? No, he's the Roman Empire living off in Italy who rules the world at his time. And then there's this Quirinius, the governor of Syria. What's that all about? Another foreign ruler ruling the land. And then we also find out that the descendants of David, namely here Joseph, is not living in Jerusalem as one of the kings. No, he's living in some stick town up in the northern part of Galilee. He's living out in Nazareth. And not only that, you found out in the first chapter that the priests weren't really around anymore as descendants of Aaron. It seems like everything that God was doing had come to an end. It had reached an impasse, so to speak. That history had finally met its immovable object that whatever God was doing in the world through this family called Abraham that was supposed to be the blessing for all the world had reached this moment where it looked like it was all for naught and it was a failure. And then here enters Galatians 4.4 in the fullness of time. I mean, in the fullness of time. Now, let's think about that. If we were writing this story, would our fullness of time look like God's fullness of time? I mean, think about it. Israel does not have the family they were supposed to have because they were a divided kingdom after hundreds of years at this point. Israel does not have the land <coughs> they were supposed to possess. 
Israel has not carried out the divine mission as being a kingdom of priests as they were supposed to carry out. And also Israel didn't even have a king anymore as they were supposed to have had one. As, as supposed to have had one from the descended family of David. Being descended from the family of David. When we... When we look at this, our story of the fullness of time might look a little different, right? We would say, no, listen, if we were writing this story, Israel would have never gone into exile. The priests would have never been compromised by the political corruption from the Hasmoneans. Oh, you know what? Israel would have never lost the land. The line of kings would have never failed and all of the kings would still be serving when the Messiah was to be born. And if we were writing the story, we would likely, because this is what we desire in our lives, right? If we're writing the story of our lives, we think of one word, success. And then God meets us and blesses us in our success that Israel would have done everything they were supposed to do and then welcome God from the heavens. And aren't you so proud of us, Lord? We've done everything you've supposed, you've told us to do. Now come on back to your kingdom. We welcome you to earth. That's how we would write the story. Because that's how we would write the story for each of us. And frankly, if you're a first century Jew, you're struggling with how to make sense of what has happened. Why has this happened? I mean, God is the supreme ruler of the entire world. Why is it that we are the most dominated people in history? Our God is the creator of the universe. Why is it that we are here, right here in this moment? Shouldn't the story be something else? Now, hindsight is far more revealing. We can look back and now as Christian people, we know, oh, oh, to our first century Jewish friends, there's so much more to the Bible than the old covenant. That the old covenant was a foreshadow of the new one to come. That God was doing something much greater and grander than just saving one family and using one family to be a blessing to the world. No, God was using one family to bring forth the Messiah. And it was through the Messiah that the whole world would be blessed. And even though they could not have seen it, and even though to us a casual passing by in our reading looks like Luke 2 is a culmination of failure from all of the Old Testament, we come to Luke 2 and we can see, but wait a second. If the mission is for the Messiah to come and then for him to live and to die and be resurrected and then that mission and gospel be taken to the world, what moment in history, what fullness are we sitting on? Well, let's talk about a few things. Caesar Augustus was ruling from Rome. What does that mean? That means that the whole known world at that time in this area of the world was under one flag. That means you could travel freely throughout the empire and go wherever you wanted to go completely unhindered because the entire Mediterranean world was under the Roman flag. Not only that, the whole world was also speaking one language. 
Speaking one language, you see an empire before the Romans, the Greek empire, when Alexander the Great went throughout the world, what he did <coughs> was he built libraries and started universities and he spread Greek culture everywhere he went so that the spoken language of the world at that time was Greek, so much so that most Jews didn't even know Hebrew anymore. They spoke the Greek language. And so now, no matter where you go, because the whole world is under one flag, the whole world is also speaking the same language it provides an opportunity for people to go forth and say what's truly happened in Bethlehem. Oh, but there's even more. Not only was the whole world under one flag, not only did the whole world speak one language, but there's something that still exists to this day, and some of you have stepped foot and walked on them, and that is the Roman roads. The first time in history, there was a major highway system that connected the known world of the Mediterranean with each other, and it was done for political purposes, for military purposes, but it also provided a highway for the news of what had started in Bethlehem and culminated with an empty tomb in Jerusalem was able to spring forth as people and missionaries were able to run down the highways speaking one language, Going from people to people under one flag and tell them all oh, the world has changed because the Messiah has come. Now, that's hindsight. I don't know that you could see that. In hindsight, we can look back and think, wow, any other time in the world, I don't know that the gospel could have sprung forth as a message for the nations. It would have been considered a Roman thing or a Jewish thing. Or if it waited to be happen, if wait, somehow the 21st century, it was going to happen in America, it would be considered an American thing. But no, this was a particular moment in history where all the world was under one flag, with one language, with one road system, and all the world could hear of what had happened in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. That's hindsight. I want to speak to you on a very personal level. Because the Bible is not just the story about what happened. It is. I believe every word of this book is true. It's been preserved for us providentially by the Holy Spirit himself. It was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's without error. And God has providentially preserved his word. So that when you hold your Bible, I believe with all of my heart, you and I can trust when we read it, we are reading the Word of God. I believe every word of this book is true. But it's not just a story about what has happened. It's a story about what always happens. You say, what do you mean by that? You know, there's a whole school of thought out there that they don't accept biblical authority in the sense that they don't agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but they do agree that there are benefits for reading the Bible and learning the story because it teaches something about human nature. And here's what I would say. They're not wrong completely. They're wrong about it being not true. I embrace every word is true. It really happened. It's written by the Holy Spirit. 
But these stories are not just stories for you and I to learn for historical information. These stories and these writings, these letters of Paul, these words of the prophets are written for our instruction that they might change and conform and transform us into who God wants us to be. So the Bible is a story about what happened, but it's not just a story about what happened. It's a story about what always happens. And like Israel, every single one of us has had aspirations of what we thought life would be. Life would look this way. If we were writing our own story, it would look like this. For example, let's use my life. That after growing up and having a wonderful time and adolescence and in high school, and I did have a wonderful childhood, that I would go to college and then in college I would marry my sweetheart somewhere in there, and believe it or not, I was able to do that too. This story's actually pretty good. And then after that, I would pursue seminary, and through that, somewhere would be allowed to minister to the Lord's church. Hey, you know what? That's exactly what happened. This is a great story. And then we would have 2.2 children, live the American dream, have no debt by the time we were 35. It would be such a glorious moment, and that One day, one day, I'll be able to reflect back and look at all of these wonderful things and thank God that he allowed me to live such a life. But that's not what happened at all. I sat in premarital counseling with my wife and the the man who was doing our premarital counseling, he asked me, he said, Matt, how many children do you want? I said, maybe one. After 15 years. I said, I would like 15 years of marriage. I was only 20 when I got married. I said, 15 years of marriage. And then after that, after all the debts paid for, the house is paid for, the cars are paid for, and we have a, a great savings set aside, then I would like to have one perfect child. <laughs> and then he looked at my wife and he said, well, Andrea, how many children do you want? And she said, six. I'll never forget, his name was Rob Mullins. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, son, you just need to buckle up. (laughs) But not only that, we were blessed with six children, but there was such tragedy in there. There was tragedy. There's there's the known tragedies that you know about, me losing my son, my wife battling cancer, some varying health problems that we've had along the way. There was a tragic season of miscarriages. You've heard me elaborate on those things, and they were all hard things. I wouldn't have put that in my story if I was writing it. Oh, no. None of that would have made the cut. No, we would have just had this perfect, magical, wonderful life. And then you know what else I wouldn't have written in? I wouldn't have written in my sin. Brother Matt, surely not you. Oh, surely, yes, me. There's only one kind of human being in the world. By the way, there's only one kind of pastor, and that's a sinful one. And thank God we're all redeemed. And if anybody tells you otherwise, they're lying. Yeah, there's some mistakes that I've made. I'd love to go back and redo those. Those wouldn't have made the cut either. 
In fact, if you were to pile all of my mistakes, and not just my mistakes and my sins, but if you were to pile all that on with the tragedies I have experienced as well, and if I had to face all of that at one moment in my life, it would do me in. There's been more than just one occasion through very low moments in my life where my heart has been broken to the point I didn't think it would get fixed where I thought there would be no way out. I can relate to first century Jews that look at this story and say, didn't really work out like we thought it was going to, did it? We would have written this story a little different. I want to tell you about a picture. There's going to be a picture on the screen here. This picture is by European artist Moritz Riesch. I had to practice saying that name. But this picture is called The Chess Players. It's nicknamed Checkmate. This picture is meant to embody Mephistopheles there. He's the devil figure. He's there on the left. And then you have this man here, Faust, but his, we can just generalize this. This is the devil and this is a man. And essentially, this picture is meant to portray the story about how a man lost his match with the devil. Now, some of you play chess. Others of you don't. Others of you don't know what it is. Well, it's a game. And the way you win is you subdue the other side's king. And once the king is out of moves, the game is over. And that is called checkmate. And the game is over regardless of how many pieces are left on the board. And the artist Maurice Reach has revealed this game here to us. And literally, over a hundred years, people looked at this painting and described it in the same way. This is a story about a man who lost his match with the devil. And I think there's something about this that we can all see. Like, there's a whole lot of white pieces over here on the devil's side and just a couple of black pieces over on the man's side. I mean, we all have some success pushing back against the wiles of the devil, but we always get whipped in the end, right? And you can see the panic in this gentleman's face that he realizes... What can I do? I've lost. A little bit of American history. This became a popular painting and was actually reproduced. It was reproduced as a line drawing through a printing press and then also later reproduced as a color reproduction. But it was literally sent all over the world. And one of the more fantastic reproductions of it was bought by a certain Virginian man an attorney by the name of the Reverend R.R. R. Harrison. Later, he left his practice of law to pursue a career in ministry. And this happened around in the 1880s. But before I tell you that, you need to know about one more unique American man. His name was Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy was a young man who was born, of all places, in New Orleans, a southerner. There, at 10 years old, it was discovered that he was a chess prodigy. 
In fact, he swept through all of the local and the state competition. Everyone recognized that this young man had a peculiar, a very unique gift. And Paul Morphy literally went throughout the South beating chess pros everywhere. In fact, by the time he was 21 years old, he had risen to world champion. He became the greatest chess player of his day. He was from the United States, grown up as a chess prodigy in New Orleans, and at the pinnacle of his chess career, at 21, he retired from chess and pursued a career in law. But one of the things that he would do is because of his fame as a chess player, he was frequently invited to come to varying chess clubs around the United States. Mr. R.R. Harrison, that Virginian I told you about, hosted a regular chess club in his home, and there was one particular night that he was going to have a very special guest, none other than Paul Morphy himself. And one of the things that Mr. Harrison had at his home there above the table in the room where the chess playing took place was this painting. Anyway, and this is a confirmed story. This is not a, a tale. This is a story. You can, there's historical documentation for this. The story goes that Morphy walked into the house that night to, to be a participant there and to also to enjoy the fellowship of the chess club. And he saw this painting hanging on the wall. And he looked up and he says, what is this? He'd never seen this before. They said, oh, that's checkmate. That's a painting. That's a story about... You know, how a man lost his match with the devil. And Paul Morphy stood there and just stared at it. And it got really awkward. In fact, they, they left the room and he just kept standing there and he was staring. And then, and then finally somebody came back and said, are you okay, Mr. Morphy? And he said, there's a problem they're either going to have to change the painting or change the name because the king has one more move. And not only does the king have one more move, once he makes this move, it will open up the board. This man is going to win. Reverend Harrison famously said, Mr. Morphy, not even you could win a game with that board. And Paul Morphy said, set the board, I'll prove it to you. The board was set, the king made his move, it opened up the board, and Paul Morphy won the game. And all of these years, people had looked at this painting, and it reminded them of one thing, Oh, it seems like the devil, the house, always seems to win. Yet the king had one more move. And once he made his move, it was going to change the game. You know what the true meaning of Christmas is? It's Jesus. King having one more move, even though it looked like in Luke chapter 1 and 2, 
that human beings used of God had failed in every possible way? No. This is exactly what the Lord knew would happen. And something is about to happen that is going to change everything. So I told you earlier, the Bible's not just the story about what happens. It's the story about what always happens. As you look at that, as you reflect on these scriptures, as you look at the Moritz Rich painting today, maybe you relate to that. And in your mind, it seems like that the devil has won. That there's, there's really no way out anymore. I'm here to tell you today that God has orchestrated the world in such a way that the chessboard of every single one of our lives always is set for the king to have one more move. And if you will turn to him, the meaning of Christmas is Jesus came for us. The way Christmas becomes meaningful us to us is if we receive what he has done as true, not just for history, but for you and me. And I want to tell you, friend, regardless of what your life looks like on December the 24th, 2023, the game is not over. There's at least one more move. And once that move is taken, it will change the board. Because God's not going to lose chess to the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the good news of Christmas. That, Lord, you came and you met us. Lord, in the failure of a nation and a people, Lord, you came and you met them, and Lord, that's what you do for each of us. Lord, this Christmas, as we reflect often on what life should have been if we only would have, Lord, let us be reminded of this painting. Friends, we... We may go our whole lives thinking that we're out of moves. But the truth of the gospel is this, that in the fullness of time, God came forth with the Messiah and he came for you and me. And in the fullness of time, the Lord saw fit for you to be here in Tupelo, December the 24th on this year, to be reminded that it's still true. He has one more move. Won't you let God, won't you let Jesus have his way in your life? For some of you in this room, that one more move is believing anew and afresh that the gospel that you accepted so many years ago still is true, despite how dysfunctional your life has become. For some of you, Believing the king has one more move is 
receiving this gospel that you've heard about, this Jesus you've heard about, and realize that this is not just a story, it is the story, and it's told that each of us might be reconciled to God. And if you've been putting off becoming a Christian, you need to do that today. Maybe God is leading you in some other way to come and be a part of First Baptist Church of Tupelo, to join our church and to be a part of this family as we experience together God moving the chess pieces in his grand game of bringing salvation to the world from this particular place for such a time as now. Lord, however it is you're leading in the lives of my friends, if they have a decision to make publicly today, I pray they would take courage today and make it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.